Okay there, saints. Welcome to the upper room. Um, we're live streaming here from the, the church um, this evening. Um, but we will be in Exodus chapter 11 as we continue our study here, um, the upper room study. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we come to you, and, and as always, we want to know your heart. As always, we're asking for clarity. We're asking for just the impartation of your spirit, Lord, that you would take your living word, that we would not just gain knowledge, Lord, but a deeper intimacy with you, a clarity to who you are and how you work. And so tonight, Father, as we go through this passage, we do ask that you would knit us to a deeper understanding of your grace. As always, Lord, we're amazed by it, how good you are, how faithful you have been. And Lord, we're not counted worthy, and yet you've chosen to redeem us. You've chosen to bless. You've chosen to allow us not to die as is justice demands. And so, Father, speak to us through your spirit. We just give you our hearts, our lives, our very walks, Lord, during this time. It's yours. Take it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there, saints, Exodus chapter 11. Um, in the first couple of verses, it simply opens up this. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and afterwards he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people. Let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Now keep in mind that Exodus chapter 11 here is not uh, a break in the Hebrew language. It's not like there's another whole section what goes on here. Keep in mind that it's a continuation so if you want it in the more proper context, as you would read from Exodus chapter 10, verses 27 through um, this, this chapter, you'd begin to see here that it's a flow. And in a sense, what we're, we're recognizing that Moses, when it says in verse 29 of chapter 10, or verse 28 and 29, Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take heed to yourself to see my face no more. From the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses says, you've spoken well, I will never see your face again. So at this point, what's happening is that Moses is not walking out. In these first three verses of chapter 11, you almost have a parenthetical section where God begins to speak to Moses. So verse 1 of chapter 11, the Lord spoke to Moses. And as he's speaking to Moses, while Moses is still in the presence of Pharaoh, eventually what happens is in verse 4, then Moses said. Moses now speaks to Pharaoh before he leaves. And as he speaks to Pharaoh, what we see is he tells him everything that's going to be happening. And then in verse 8, 
as he concludes it, he said, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you after that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So understand, a lot of times we look at verse or chapter 11, we kind of make a complete break from chapter 10, and that's not what happens. Chapter 11 is more included into a precursor, so it would be included more with chapter 10 than it would be in chapter 12. And so as God is speaking to, to Moses initially here in this first part, with this parenthetical phrase, phrasing that he says, I'm going to bring one more plague upon him. And so speak now in the hearing of the people, you know, tell everyone to ask from his neighbor and get these articles of silver and gold. So that's the context as we come into chapter 11, that it is uh, still a concluding area of what had happened there in chapter 10. So don't think it's separate. Don't think it's distinct. It's a carryover for what we've been doing. Now, I want you to see here as we've been going through these series of plagues that we've been noting how that they come in groups of threes. The, they come in three there were the very first time that you have the three sets, it's Aaron and the rod. The next time it moves to God alone, and then it moves to um, the next, the last three where Pharaoh uses the rod. And as we've been noting that, the first one comes where it says, go to Pharaoh in the morning and warn him. So he warns him initially. Then it comes and it says, go to him again and warn him. And then the third within each set is there's no warning. There's simply a plague that hits Egypt. And of course, we've noted how they've gone in severity. So there have been three groups of three plagues that have hit now the nation of Egypt. And at this point, if you haven't been following along, the scorecard is this, God nine, Egypt zero. So where we're looking at this, and at this point, Pharaoh still is trying to control Israel. He's still wanting to, in a sense, control ultimately God where he doesn't want to obey God's voice. Now, we have talked about how Pharaoh has received a light. Initially, he says, who is God that I should obey his voice there in chapter 5, verse 2. But eventually, God has been giving to Pharaoh more and more light to who he is. An understanding of his greatness, an understanding of what God is trying to do through his people to bring them out. And Moses is refusing to receive the light that God is giving him. So in a sense, we've noted how Pharaoh is hardening his heart. And as we've noted that, we're there in chapter 10, verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. We've noted how there are times that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. There's times that God assists him, aids him in hardening his heart. But then there's other times where through the works of the magicians and certain things that they also have a tendency of adding to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. One thing we did note, and I want to make that clarification again in this study as we go on to this last one, where it never declares that God hardens Pharaoh's heart against his will. It just doesn't happen. And so that's what we're looking at here. 
Now, Pharaoh here, as we're making a mention, he still wants to control the nation of Israel. He wants to control what God is wanting Pharaoh to do. And Pharaoh just doesn't want to listen to it. A couple of verses I want to give you just prior to get into this study is this. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, um, that will stand. We see that although Pharaoh has an idea of what he wants, Pharaoh has this recognition, this is what I'm going to do. The beautiful thing is, is this, that God says, I've got a plan and my counsel is going to stand. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27. Speaking similarly, it says this, For the Lord of hosts has purposed. And then he asks this question, who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? When God makes a decision to do something, he's simply going to do it. And if Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart against the plan of God, then he's going to be finding himself very similar to what we've been looking at with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? After he had been talking about this great city that I have built, he began to puff himself up and God had warned him not to. And as he does, God just turns Nebuchadnezzar into this wild beast. And eventually Nebuchadnezzar comes back after seven years to a right mind. And he makes this statement in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol, and I honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And then Nebuchadnezzar says this about the Lord. And those who walk in pride he is able to put down. And Nebuchadnezzar has learned that in the most powerful way, but in the same sense, so has the Pharaoh. And as, as Pharaoh begins to recognize this, eventually he's going to come to this place where God is going to bring this one more plague. And this is what he says to Moses, prior to Moses speaking to the Pharaoh, in chapter 11, verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh. Notice he calls it Pharaoh. He doesn't say on Egypt. He initially says, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh, speaking of him distinctly, and then he adds, and on Egypt. And afterwards, he will let you go. So in other words, God has been saying he's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you go. But after this last one, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. So he's not just going to say, go on your way. He's going to chase you out of Egypt. This is going to show God's power over the will of Pharaoh. As Pharaoh has been resisting, 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 God says, you're choosing to resist. I'll aid you in this resistance. Eventually, Pharaoh is going to come to the point where he's going to succumb and give himself over to the will of God, to the purposes of God, and he's simply going to drive out the children of Israel as God begins to humble him. And now we're going to see something interesting. There's a point where here in verse 2 and 3, 
that as God speaks to Moses, he makes this statement, speak now in the hearing of the people. Now, is this simply the people of Israel or is it the people of Israel and of Egypt? Um, it doesn't distinguish which is here. Um, so I'm saying that God is going to speak this or Moses is going to speak this in the hearing of the people. Some say it's just of Israel. Some say it's um, both. I would lean towards both. But if you want to think just Israel, you know, then that's fine. It doesn't show conclusively one way or another, but he is supposed to speak now in the hearing. You need to speak this out loud. Let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and gold, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. I find it interesting that the, the people are in favor of, are in, the people have favor with the Egyptians. Moses himself has this, this you know, favor with Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. However, not Pharaoh. Pharaoh is, is excluded from this list, and I find that absolutely incredible. Now, why is it that God is choosing to allow Israel to come and to ask the Egyptians for these articles of silver and articles of gold? There's a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 15. We've noted this before, but I want to read it to you. It begins in verse 12, and it goes all the way down to verse 14. As the Lord begins to talk to the children of Israel about the slaves that they have. It begins in Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And you shall send him away free from you, and you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press, from what the Lord has blessed you with. And you shall give to him. So with everything that God has blessed the those that would have slaves in Israel. He says, you've been blessed by these people. You're going to honor them. You're going to give them wages when they leave you. And I think that's the key to what begins to go on. There's a passage in the book of Joshua. I want to read it to you in Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. It simply declares this, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel all came to pass. Now, why am I sharing that? Well, God had been speaking way back in Genesis chapter 15. Let me share it with you because in Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham was there. He had the um, he fell asleep as he was 
beginning to make that covenant with God. So God made the covenant alone. But God spoke this to Abram when he was there in that dream. In Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 13 and 14, then he, that is God, said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and will serve them. And they, that is the land that they are in, will afflict them 400 years. And also, here in Genesis 15, 14, the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So God had already spoken to Abram. He had given him the vision that what would happen is the as they leave, first they're going to be afflicted for the 400 years, but when they leave, they're going to be leaving with great possessions. Earlier on in the book of Exodus, when we were reading in chapter 3, we noted in verse 21 and 22 of Exodus 3, that God made this declaration to Moses, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And then he says this, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. So when they're asking for these, God says that you are going to simply be receiving your wages. That's what I'm doing. I'm giving you the wages that have been yours and withheld from you for over 400 years. So when an Israelite would have a slave who served them six years, you would have to give him liberally. And so as they served for 400 years, they are going to be serving them very liberally. And so we note here that this is what God says is going to happen. And of course, we've noted that everything that God had declared to the nation Israel would come to pass. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 35 and verse 36, the, the Lord declares this, makes this statement. Now, the children of Israel had it done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So we see here that what was spoken is true. Everything that they have asked, they will receive. The Egyptians simply want the nation of Israel to leave and they're willing to part with whatever it is that they want at the time. Now, we've noted how in Psalm 105, it's a psalm that constantly reminds us of what has taken place here in Egypt. And in verse 37 and verse 38 of that Psalm 105, it declares, And he also brought them out with silver and gold. And then he makes this statement, And there was none feeble among his tribes. So with everything that had happened to the nation of Egypt, with all of the things that began to affect them, 
none of the children of Israel was feeble in any way. And then it says this in verse 38, And Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. So God brings them out with this gold, with the silver. He brings them out strong. And Egypt is actually happy to give them what they're requesting, these articles of gold and these articles of silver. So what they're doing here is when God tells Moses, I want you to speak to the people in the hearing, he's literally declaring, I'm giving to them wages. And these wages that they are going to be receiving, they don't know this yet. But these wages that they are receiving will eventually go into the building of the tabernacle. And so this is what God is doing through the nation of Israel as he allows Egypt to provide for them in their journey. So that's that parenthetical statement that God now gives to Moses. So now Moses begins to speak to Pharaoh. And he says this, Then Moses said, and of course he's speaking to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. Now I want to pause here to bring clarification. We know that as we're going through the Bible here on Monday nights, that we're looking to do this as a type of a foundation, that we're trying to take these principles that are discussed and to share what it is that Scripture declares about these subjects and about these principles. So here in verse 4, and I want you to understand a little bit about what's going on, because Moses is now talking to Pharaoh. And he says, thus says the Lord about midnight. Now it's not going to be this midnight, the midnight of this day. As we're going to see, it's going to take a couple weeks for all this to transpire, but it is going to be at midnight on a particular evening. Of course, we know it's going to be the 14th of Nisan, but it's going to be about midnight. And here's what God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such was not like it before nor shall be it be like it again. But, verse 7, against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast. So we see here that what Moses is declaring to Pharaoh is, God said about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And so, what happens to this, most people think that why is God going to go out and kill all the firstborn? Why is it that, why doesn't God just take out Pharaoh and, and you know, 
what is it that God is, is doing? Why take out the firstborn? Well, a couple of things to make a note. The first thing that I want to share is this, that earlier on in the, the, the book of Exodus, as we were covering through it, we begin to see here that the old Pharaoh has died. And it makes this statement. Let me see if I can find it. I'm, gonna, I, I'm drawing a blank here on my note. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it makes this declaration. And it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Keep in mind, the old Pharaoh died, new Pharaoh came in. And through that, the old Pharaoh is no longer there. The new Pharaoh is just as bad as the first. So by taking out one Pharaoh, another one's going to come up in his place. That's not going to allow the Pharaoh to drive out the nation of Israel. So what God does is this. He makes this declaration that I'm going to come and, and I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And then he makes this statement, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. So the problem with most people have is if God is a loving God, why is God going to be killing all the firstborn? A couple of things that I want to make note of so you have a better grounding of what it is that is actually going to be taking place. There is a passage in the very next chapter, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. It declares this, and it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So it does say in chapter 9 that the Lord struck all the firstborn. So is it God who is doing the killing, or is it God who is allowing this to take place? I want you to back up in Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to look at verse 23, because this is where the key now comes into what's going to be transpiring here on the night of Passover. It says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow, note this, the destroyer, to come into your house to strike you. So what happens is this. It's actually making a declaration that the Lord will not allow the destroyer to come into your house. What's happening is this, that there are going to be certain houses in which will have the blood. The blood is going to be covering certain houses. And when this destroyer comes and God has a protection over that house, so the destroyer cannot come into the house. And that's what it says in verse 23. Read it again, the latter part, where after it says he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over 
the door. So God is going to pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. It's interesting that when we look to the Passover, we always think it's passing over the house, passing over the house, passing over the house. But here, the inference is this. God is in the house, and he's going to now pass over the door to prevent the destroyer from actually coming in to do any damage. Why? Because when the blood is on the house, what happens is this, that the death that this destroyer is coming to do has already been satisfied. And the Lord is making witness of this blood. And when you have witness of the blood, what happens is this. God now says, now that this blood is here, I'm going to choose whether or not I allow the destroyer to come into the house to have access to you. And what God does is this. For every family who is choose, chosen to be under the blood, God chooses to honor their choice. See, they choose to say, I want to obey God and I want to sacrifice this lamb and I want to put the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost. And when I do that, then I've made this choice to honor God. And what God does is he then honors their choice. And for those who chose to be under the blood, then God says, listen, death has now been satisfied in this house. So you can't come as a destroyer to bring about death again. Point in a man wants to die. And God says, listen, I've already had a substitute for these, the lamb. And so everyone who is in this house, they will not have the destroyer come and bring about a second death. God has said the death has been satisfied God covers the house with the blood, and so the destroyer will pass over that house. In the same way as God is not going to allow those that are in the house to, to perish or to have that death angel or have the destroyer come, it's very similar to what God did there with Lot and Sodom. Remember in Genesis chapter 19, where these two angels came to Sodom. And they came in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them here in Genesis 19 verse 1, he met him, he bowed himself down with his face towards the ground. And eventually, the, you know the things that transpired, but in Genesis 19 verses 12 and 13, the men said to Lot, these are those two angels, have you anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, or whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because of the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And then as we move further on into chapter 19 and verse 22, these angels tell Lot, hurry, escape from there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. So they push Lot to get out of the way. So what we're seeing here is this, that God is going to accept the choices of those people who've chosen to have, have the blood 
and he's going to allow anyone else who does not have the blood to simply reap the consequences. There's a passage that you should be aware of. I want to read it to you. It's found in Acts chapter 13. And in Acts chapter 13, I want to read verse 46, and I want to read verse 48, because Paul and Barnabas are here, and it declares this, Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, speaking to the Jews in the synagogue. But since you rejected it, and you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So God has brought Paul and Barnabas to the Jews there in the synagogue, and he says, I, I want to give to you this opportunity for eternal life. I want to give to you the opportunity to receive your Messiah, Jesus Christ. But they make this statement, and keep in mind, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it makes sense, since you rejected it, you are the ones who are choosing to reject the blood. You're the ones who are choosing to reject the sacrifice that God has given for you. And since you judge yourselves unworthy, not, not God judges you unworthy, you judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And then in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now notice what happens. Here, the Jews are choosing themselves to be unworthy. They're choosing themselves to reject the sacrifice. They're choosing themselves to not accept the blood to cover them. And so they've chosen this, and so they're the ones who are rejecting it because they choose themselves to be unworthy. And then in verse 48, it talks about the Gentiles who hear it and as many as had been appointed. The God said, here's my ones. These are the ones that are going to come. So keep in mind that what we do see is this, that God is choosing to honor the choice of all who are in Egypt. That all who want to be under the blood, God is choosing to say, I'm going to prevent the destroyer from coming into the house. And we're going to look at this more next week. And I find it beautiful because if you're in the house that's under the blood, and if you have absolute faith that God is going to allow everyone in this house to have no one of the firstborn to die, then guess what's going to happen? God is going to prevent, he's not going to allow the destroyer to come into the house. Now, what if you're in the house and you're absolutely terrified and you have no faith and you're thinking, oh, could I still die? Could I still die? Could I? God is not going according to your faith. He's not according to how much faith you have. You had enough faith to be in that house. That's all the faith you need. And if you're terrified in that house, guess what? God is still going to not allow the destroyer to come into your house. That's verse 23. Because he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. He recognizes the blood. And so at this point, 
what happens is that this destroyer that's going to come is prevented from doing any more damage. Now, we've already noted in the scripture how there is times where the enemy wants to do something, but he has to have God's permission. And if the destroyer wants to go into the house, there's no way God is going to let him go into that house. Remember those two passages in the book of Job? I'm going to just read to you Job chapter 1, verse 12, and Job chapter 2, verse 6. Both of them speaking similarly, but each time was a different point where Satan amped up his attack against Job. But in Job chapter 1, verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, eventually, God allows Satan to touch Job but he makes this statement in Job chapter 2, verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. You have to understand that this destroyer that we see here in verse 3, this destroyer will not have permission. God will not allow. So when here in our text, back in chapter 11, in verse 4, where Moses says, Thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. He is going to go out in the midst of Egypt. And God is going to allow everyone who chooses not to be under the blood, he's going to allow the destroyer to come. So what is God doing? Well, it says in chapter 12, verse 29, God struck all the firstborn. He didn't prevent their destruction. He didn't prevent the destroyer from coming in. And so, in a sense, God is saying, I'm the one that's doing this. Nothing can happen without my permission. And if you choose not to be under the blood, if you choose not to have a death substitute, then death will come for you. And so it's just an incredible passage. Clarity comes because it isn't God who's killing the firstborn. It's God who's saying, I'm giving you the opportunity to be under the blood and have a substitute. But if you reject my word, if you reject what I'm doing, then there is no substitute for you. Thus, you will die because of your choice. And that's the same way that, of course, Paul and Barnabas had said to the Jews there in Acts 13. So the next question that I want to take, and I'm going to cover it here as we go through chapter 11 versus doing it next week as we get into chapter 12. Really, what is this destroyer? And I want you to understand that it isn't God himself that's going out and killing. God goes out into Egypt. God prevents the destroyer. He does not allow the destroyer, Exodus 12, 23, to come into the house to strike you. Who or what is this destroyer? A couple of things that you're going to make a note of because it, it covers where the death of, of the firstborn. And I want you to see what the context is in scripture to what it is that begins to happen. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28. Speaking of the faith of Moses, it says this in Hebrews eleven twenty-eight: By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. 
So we see that it is someone or something that comes through and destroys the firstborn. Another passage that I want you to be aware of prior to looking into a little bit deeper is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. I want to read verse 9 and 10 to you, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, it makes this destroyer, or it makes this statement, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. The NIV Bible, if you have one of those, it's called the destroying angel, but it's called the destroyer. So what is the destroyer? Is there any clarity that we can find in scripture? And the answer to that is yes, of course, we can find a little more clarity in scripture. Remember the two Psalms that really speak about this whole incident that happened through these plagues in Egypt was we made note at Psalm 105 and, of course, Psalm 78. And in Psalm 78, a couple of verses I want you to be aware of, um, and just so that you can be clear on this, I want to read to you verses 49 through 51. Psalm 78, verse 49 through 51. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending, and this is what here, the, the, the psalmist begins to speak here, Asaph declares in Psalm 78, by sending angels, it's plural, angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. What Asaph does in Psalm 78, he actually talks about not just in a destroying angel, period, not just an angel of death, period, but destroying angels. So you have this little bit of a, of a clarity. The term angels in the, the Hebrew is, is a word called malak. And within it, let me just kind of share with you what, it, what other portions of Scripture declare it to be. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 7, remember when we went through Genesis and Hagar was fleeing from Sarah. And it says in Genesis 16, verse 7, it talks about how the angel of the Lord comes to her. So we see that same term is referred to as the angel of the Lord. A little further in the book of Genesis, when Jacob is having his dream and he sees the angels ascending and descending as the new King James calls it upon the ladder or the stairwell. And so we see as Jacob has this dream, he sees angels, plural, same word that's found in Psalm 78. He sees them ascending and descending upon that ladder, upon that stairwell. And so we understand that these angels can be referred to as the angel of the Lord. It can be a pre-incarnate Christ. 
but uniquely in Psalm 78. As the New Testament calls it the destroyer, Psalm 78 really brings what it's called. It's called the angels of destruction. The New King James actually says this in Psalm 78, verse 89. He calls them evil angels. Now, why does he call them evil angels? Well, the, the term destruction is unique within the scripture. The term in the Hebrew is simply ra, R-A. You could pronounce it R-A-H, but it's just ra. Um, and it simply declares this. A couple of places that the... Englishman's Concordance translates this term destruction that we see here in Psalm 78, verse 49. The angels of destruction, or as the New King James puts it, the evil angels. The reason they do it is because there in Genesis 2, verse 9, where there in the midst of the garden was the tree of the knowledge of good and Evil. The same word is used for evil for the tree of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where there at the time of Noah, the Lord looks at the world and he saw the wickedness of man. And so here we see that God actually sees the, the raw of man. It's the wickedness of man. And so this term can be, um, you know, looked at as evil. It can be looked at as wickedness. And even as we were going through the, the 10 plagues, when the Pharaoh was going through the eighth plague, the plague of locusts, he made that statement in Exodus 10, verse 10, where he said, he said, now beware for evil is ahead of you. So as we're looking to this, we're noting how these angels of destruction or this destroyer is angels who bring about wrath, bring about this death. And it's unique because there are some scholars who actually believe that what happens is it isn't the angel, the Lord, it isn't Jesus who is coming down to slay the firstborn. It's that God, like Job, doesn't prevent Satan or his, um, the angels that have fallen, prevent them from doing damage. And so keep in mind that Satan is a murderer. He wants to simply wipe out everybody. And it's God's hand of grace that constantly is the thing that withholds Satan from doing anything. In the same way he spoke to Peter, he says, listen, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat, but don't worry. He says, I prayed for you. And so when you are strengthened, when you are returned, and, and when you are coming back, then strengthen your brother. So, so I prayed for you that you will not stumble. And so you are going to, you know, you're you're going to trip up, but you are going to come back. And so Satan was allowed only so much that he could do to Peter. He wanted to wipe him out, but God would not let him. So when it comes to this point, and this is why I wanted you to be aware of what is transpiring here in chapter 11, verse 4. Because as Moses is saying, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go into the midst of Egypt. Now God will go into the midst of Egypt. 
And what God is going to do is he's going to be looking for all the houses that have blood on the doors. And then God is going to prevent the destroyer from going into those houses to strike the firstborn that is in there. So God has already said, destroyer, you're going to be allowed to take the firstborn of all. And then what God does is this. He says, anyone in which is in a house where death has already been satisfied, where the blood is now set upon that house, you cannot enter that house. I'm not going to allow it. And so that death begins to reign. And so in this portion of Exodus 11, verse 5, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. It isn't God who's killing it. God is allowing them to die. Why? Because of their choice. They've chosen not to be under the blood. They've chosen to reject the word of God. They've made that choice. And because they didn't choose or judge themselves worthy of being spared, then God is going to allow the judgment to come upon them. And so we see here in verse 4 and 5 of Exodus 11, at midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. He is going to go out. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. All that are not under the blood will. But keep in mind, it's not God saying, I'm going to go out and kill all the firstborn. God is going to allow them their choice, those who are not under the blood. Now, he goes on in verse 5 by saying, the first, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill. Now, we've already looked at why God is going to say, I'm going to kill the firstborn and not Pharaoh. There's more to it than just simply not killing Pharaoh because when one Pharaoh dies, of course, in Exodus 2.23, another Pharaoh comes as just as wicked. I want you to understand that there is a truth that is found in the New Testament. It's actually found in Galatians chapter 6. And what I want to do is I want to read to you verse 7. It simply says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. We call it the law of sowing and reaping. And so what happens here is that Pharaoh himself and the Pharaohs that have gone before simply want to wipe out the nation of Israel and I want to start by sharing with you a passage in Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, remember the first time that Pharaoh wanted to try to kill the Israeli men. It says here in verse 10 of Exodus 1, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. So he wants to deal shrewdly with them. He doesn't want them to grow. He doesn't want them to multiply. So he wants to, in a sense, put them to a work camp to work them to death. So he says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Let's stop them from growing in numbers. Let's simply work them to death. 
And it happened in the event of war that they join our enemies and fight against us, so they go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And so they were in the dread of the children of Israel. So first they wanted to simply wipe out the males. They wanted to work them to death. And eventually that doesn't work. So what does he do? Well, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 16, the Pharaoh comes to the midwives and he says, when you do the duties of the midwives for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So we understand that now he's wanting to kill infants. But he's wanting to kill the infant males. So first work the males to death. Then I want to try to kill the infant males as soon as they're born. That doesn't work. And then what he does is this. In Exodus 1 verse 22 So Pharaoh commanded all his people, and he makes this statement, Every son who is born to you, who is born, you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So we'll take the women, but if you see a baby boy, take the baby boy and cast him into the Nile. And that's how we're going to defeat Israel. We're going to wipe out the male children. And uniquely, God uses that same way that Pharaoh wanted to destroy Israel to destroy Egypt. Why? Because Moses' mother said, all right, I'll cast my son into the Nile. And she does, only she puts him in an ark. And so we make note of this, that what Pharaoh is trying to do is he's trying to wipe out the Israeli men. Now, there is this portion, we've covered it before, in Exodus chapter 4. I want to read to you verse 22 and verse 23. Simply declares this, And when then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Do you understand that every time that you kill one of the sons of Israel, you are killing the firstborn. Israel is my son, my firstborn. Remember what Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus when he stopped him on the road? He said this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he takes it personally. And in the same way God says to through Moses to Pharaoh, here in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Remember, we've talked about multiple times that God has a different definition of death. What God's definition of death is this. Remember when Adam 
was there in the garden, and God told him, in the day that you eat of this fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yet when Adam ate of it, he didn't choke, he didn't fall down dead at that point, but he was separated from God. He was no longer in connection and communion with God. In a sense, we noted how God had made man in his image. Adam, with the the spiritual connection, eventually that was no longer Adam no longer had that connection to God. And so God says, when you don't have intimacy with me, you're dead. That's how I look at you. You're you're not living unless you are connected to me. Eventually, as Jesus comes on the scene, he says, you can be born again. That you can now have not only that natural birth, he says to Nicodemus in John 3, but you can have this spiritual birth. You have to be born of the water, which is the natural birth, and you have to be born of the spirit, which is the spiritual birth. So anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and the work that he's done, when you accept the blood, when you accept that sacrifice, God prevents death from coming to you. You no longer are dead. You now have life. And as we're going to see here next week, it's the beginning of the years. It's a brand new life. It's a brand new start. Everything is new once you have this blood applied to you. And so as we're looking to this, he makes that statement, if you're not letting my son Israel come to me, if you're separating him from me, what you're doing is you are keeping him from connecting, you're making him, in a sense, dead. Because he's not communing with me. He's not with me. And so he says, Israel is my, my son, my firstborn. So I say to you here in Exodus 4.23, let my son go that he may serve me. Let him come in connection with me. Let him live. Because if not, I'm going to kill your firstborn son, your son, your firstborn. He will no longer have a chance to have connection with me. If he's not under the blood, I'm going to allow the destroyer to come in and to strike him. So God here is warning. And as he's warning here, the Pharaoh, keep in mind that he's trying to let Pharaoh know At this point here in Exodus chapter 11, verse 5, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die because you are preventing my son from coming to me. I've already told you there in Exodus 4 that I'm going to take out your firstborn. And now what Moses does is he reiterates this now to Pharaoh. And in verse 5, all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. So he talks about whether you're rich or poor. There is no substitute. You can't buy your way into not having the angel of death. It has to be purchased by the life of another. It has to be purchased through the life of the lamb. 
And that's the key to what we recognize. Money can't buy your way into heaven. Good works can't buy your way into heaven. Faith can't buy your way into heaven. Only when you apply the blood. You have to act on what God said. When you act on it and you receive the blood, you receive that sacrifice of another, at that point, God says, now I'm choosing to protect you and not allowing this destroyer to come in and to strike you. So through this, no matter who you are, whether you are a servant, whether you're the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, a, 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 a female servant who's at the hand mill, one of the, um, the firstborn of animals, even the animals, every firstborn will die. And then verse 6, there's going to be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Such has not been like it before, nor shall be like it again. And so in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 and 30, let me simply read it to you. And it came to pass at midnight, the Lord struck all the firstborn of the land of Egypt from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. So we begin to see here God is fulfilling his word, but he warns him. He warns Pharaoh, this is going to happen. Of course, we understand it's going to be, God's going to teach him. Here's going to be now the first month, and on the first of the month, and on the 10th of the month, on the 14th of the month. And it won't be until the 14th of Nisan that all this begins to transpire. So Pharaoh still keeps his heart hardened as God is waiting for the nation of Israel to work these things through. But he does make a statement. I want you to note how in the last couple of weeks we've been seeing here that understanding of Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We've been making note after note how there in the the New Testament it talks about how it isn't wrong for God to harden the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's already choosing to harden his heart. The the issue isn't because Pharaoh has the pride and God is going to humble him. We note that that's going to happen. But the real issue is that it isn't wrong for God to harden the heart of a sinner. What's amazing to me is that God would soften the heart of those that he's going to want to save. Remember, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And it's unique how that God would pour grace upon Israel, even though Israel is not any better than what Egypt is. Let me share with you, as it says here in verse 7, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. God is going to make a difference between the Egyptians and God is going to make a difference between Israel. What is the difference? Well, I want to share with you just a couple of passages so that you can kind of see what the difference is. Just 
jot them down or, you know, rewind and, and pause, you know, the, the live stream. I don't think that'll work. But I'm going to give you a couple of passages. I'll read them to you. You can just make notes of them as you're ready. But in Leviticus chapter 17, I want to read verses 6 and 7. It says this, And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for the sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 7, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. So we see here that God says they're going to sacrifice to me only and no longer to the demons. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, it declares this, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served, on the other side of the river, and in Egypt, serve the Lord. So we see here that, that they also begin to deal with and to worship the Egyptian gods, the Egyptian idols. And in Ezekiel chapter 20, it brings a little bit more clarity, a larger passage. I want to start reading in verse 5, and I'm going to read to verse 14. Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning in verse 5, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, and I raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob, and I made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them saying, I am the Lord your God. So as God comes to Egypt, he says, I'm yours, I'm yours. I'm going to be your God. On that day, verse six, I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. And I said to each of them, I said to them, each of you, Throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Verse 8, but they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and I will fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profane before the Gentiles among whom they were in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and I brought them into the wilderness and I gave them my statutes, and I showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Verse 13, yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. 
They despise my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. And I said I would pour my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. But I acted for my namesake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I brought them out. It's interesting that the children of Israel, they followed these gods. They followed the idols of Egypt. And God said, I want you to cast them away. And they didn't cast them away. And it's interesting, God says, I'm going to be the one. I want to reveal myself to you. I want to show who I am to you. And he comes to Egypt to meet with the children of Israel. And it's interesting what they do. What is the difference between Israel and Pharaoh? Well, one, they both seem to be worshiping the same idols. And here's a unique aspect of of who they are with Pharaoh as well. I want to share with you initially in Exodus chapter 2. It begins this in verses um, 23 and 24. It says this, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. One thing it does not say in verse 23 When they groaned because of the bondage, and it says they cried out. Who did they cry out to? It doesn't say they cried out to God. They cried out. And all they're doing is they're crying out. They're not crying out to God, it doesn't say. They're just crying out. And their cry, God is listening to them. And then God hears their groaning, and God remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, Jacob. And God looks upon the children of Israel, and he acknowledges them. And then... In Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, remember when we covered that, it made this statement. So the people believed, and when they had heard the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that he looked on their afflictions, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. So immediately, as Moses and Aaron comes and shows the signs before the people, the people believe the signs. And then they bow their heads and they begin to worship the Lord. However, it doesn't take very long because in the fifth chapter, here in verse 20 and 21, it says, And they came out from Pharaoh, and they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said, Let the Lord look upon you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in the hand to kill us. And so what God does is he gives to them an incredible promise. This is a promise that is above all promises. In chapter 6 of Exodus... It says in verses 6 to 8, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and I will take you as my people. I will be your God, then you shall know that I am the Lord. 
your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. This incredible promise that was given to them. But look at their response in verse 9 of chapter 6 of Exodus. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. It's interesting that God says, I'm going to show you Pharaoh. I want you to know the difference the Lord makes between the Egyptians and Israel. And what's the difference? Difference is grace. In all honesty, the difference is grace. They they all worship idols. Some believe the word of God initially, and then they kind of, I believe it, but I really can't act on it. But eventually they act on the one thing that is necessary. In other words, a lot of things they have flaws on. The one thing that was needed, the one thing that was necessary is what? The blood. If that's all they get, they miss everything else, but they apply the blood. They're under the house that has the blood. Then God says, That's the difference. When they choose to be under the blood, we've looked at it this last Sunday, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. What he's doing to, you know, the Pharaoh who is in his pride rejecting God, God's saying, I'm resisting you, I'm resisting you, I'm hardening you, and I'm enabling you to continue to go further and further away from me. But God gives grace to the humble. He doesn't give earnings to the humble. It's not like when you're humble, now God, you've earned something from God. It's not like what you hum, once you're humble that God, you know, you deserve what God is going to give to you. It's still grace. We deserve nothing. We deserve judgment. Israel, when you look at what it was that made them different from the Egyptians, initially there's nothing. They're both, you know, crying out there. They're both doing the Egyptian idols. And then the one difference is this. The one humbled themselves enough. And then God in his grace says, I'm going to prevent, because of your choice to be under the blood, I'm going to prevent the destroyer from coming in and striking you. So we see this incredible word that God is doing. And so we see here this passage in Exodus 11, verse 7. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out. They're all going to just simply say, would you please leave? And all the people who follow you, everyone who has been looking to you to lead them are now going to say, We're done with Pharaoh, done with his choices. Would you please just get out? And after that, Moses says, I will go out. And then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. I want to pause here for just a second. And I'm going to just take a few minutes here to kind of share a couple things with you. Moses here, and I want you to make a note of something that he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. Moses is angry. 
when Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, in Ephesus 2, verse 26, he brings some clarity to really what he desires. And let me just simply read to you this passage in Ephesus 2, verse 6, Ephesians 2, 6. It makes this statement. Oh, 2.26. In Exodus 2.26, no, that isn't it either. Well, I just, is it 1.26? Is it 1.26? Well, I will get it to you, but it, it makes a statement that if you are angry, do not sin. Or when you are angry, do not sin. And, and so I'm sorry that I, I oofsed on that reference, but what, within this, he, he makes this statement that if, if you're angry, he says, do not sin. Yet Moses here, and I want you to see that Moses, it talks about him um, in the, the Septuagint here, is, is that, that he is one of the meekest men, or he is the meekest man on the earth at the time. But Moses here, he does have a problem with anger. And this anger gets to him. Now, Moses is the deliverer, make no mistake. And, but what happens is that Moses does have an issue with anger. I want to read to you a couple of passages so that you can at least be familiar with what it is that Moses is going through. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 19 and 20, it makes this statement, Exodus 16, 19, and Moses said, let no one... let." No one leave any of it till morning, speaking of the manna that comes. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, so they didn't eat it all. They tried to keep more in their tent so they wouldn't have to go out and, and harvest it again in the morning. And it bred worms and stank, and it says this in Exodus sixteen twenty. and Moses was angry with them. In Exodus chapter 32, Verses 15 through 20, we see here, same type of situation. When Moses is getting the, the commandments, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on one side, on the other side they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, the writing of, the, was the writing of God engraved on tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor is it the noise of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses's anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hand and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. So we see that in Moses's anger, he comes through and he breaks the tablets of God, and of course, then as he does, he, you know, um, crushes the, the, the calf, puts the ashes in water, makes the people drink it. We also see that Moses does something unique in Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus 16, if you're familiar with what's happening, Korah and a group of people are rebelling against Moses. And he eventually comes to this point in Exodus 16, verses 14 and 15, 
Moreover, they say to Moses, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us the inheritance of the fields and the vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of the men? In other words, will you blind people to your true intentions? Will you put out the eyes of the men? We will not come up. Then Moses was very angry, and he said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. Over and over, we see that Moses here becomes very angry, and the anger keeps coming and coming. And it numbers chapter 31, beginning in verse 12. And I want to read down to verse 16. So they bring the captives of the booty. These are the, the Midianites. And so these officers bring the captives of the booty and the spoil to Moses, to Eliezer the priest, and to the congregation, the children of Israel, to the camp of the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And Moses and Eliezer the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over the thousands, the captains over the hundreds who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. It's interesting as Moses sees the failures and the failures and the failures, he's angry and he's angry and he's angry. Now, when Jesus sees hypocrisy, he's angry. But when he sees failure, what happens? He has compassion. Eventually, he comes to the point where in Numbers chapter 20, it begins in the very first sentence, number 20, that, that Miriam dies. And the children of Israel, they're wanting water. And they begin to cry out to Moses Saying, you know, saying, should we, are we going to die here? So Moses, you know, of course, falls on his face before the Lord. And in verse 7 of Exodus 20, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes. He says, speak, you, you smote the rock the first time, speak to the rock this time before their eyes. And it will yield its water, and you shall bring water out for them from the rock and, and give drink to the congregation or animals. This is God, I want to meet their needs. Yeah, they're flawed, but I'm still going to meet their needs. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Who's the we? Like Moses can make water come out of a rock? It's God that does it. And so Moses lifted his hand. He struck the rock twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregations, the animal, drank. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 12, and said, Because you did not believe to hallow me in the eyes of the children, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. Keep in mind, Moses has a problem with anger. Some of the anger that we see is justified. But keep in mind that when you are having a righteous anger, that a lot of times what happens is, is our anger is just anger. We should more and more so have compassion to the issues that people face versus the anger. And Moses here has now spoke to Pharaoh saying, you know what, you're going to have a lot of death on your hands. Pharaoh, of course, he says, listen, get away from me. 
Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. From the day that you see my face, you shall die. Well, Moses said, you've spoken well. But he's angry when he leaves. He's angry because of either Pharaoh's heart. He's angry because of what's going to happen with the death. But it's interesting that, that Moses here, we begin to see a little bit about where his character flaw is. He's angry. And in the same way as he got angry with the children of Israel, he smites the rock again. And God says, Moses, I'm not angry with I, I know their, their issues. I know their thing. I, what I want to do is this. I, you have misrepresented me. You're, now they're thinking that I'm angry with them too, and I'm not. So Moses, in his anger, some of it righteous, some of it's justified, some of it's not. And as we note this, what we begin to see here is verse 8, where here he says, get out and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh would not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. So we begin to see here what chapter 11 is, is a really solid foundation to what's about to happen. So he wanted to take a little extra time to look at this passage so that when we go into chapter 12 and on, the flow is a little bit more clean and we won't have to back up. So we're going to set the foundation here in chapter 11. And then we'll continue to establish that and build upon it as we get into chapter 12. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we are so grateful for this word, the things that you show us, the truth of what is going on. God, you are merciful. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. And yet you've, you've set before them life or death. And you're saying, choose life that you may live. And if they would only look upon you, Jesus, upon the cross, if they would choose to look upon you, they would choose to accept you as their sacrifices, they would choose to allow your blood to be that which covers them so that we would not taste death, that death could not come for us, that we would have life everlasting. Thank you, Lord, for showing us who you are. You are the God who covers you are the God who prevents the destroyer. That's who you are. You're the God that was trying to reveal your heart, reveal life. You're setting before them these things, and you're begging them to choose life. And yet they choose differently. And you allow their choices. And Father, that's your grace. It is your grace. We look to the difference of, of Israel and, and Egypt, and there's really not any other than, than they chose to humble themselves, and so you've given them grace. Not what they deserved. They deserved as, as idolaters to die. They deserved as idolaters to, to go through the plagues, and yet you allowed these plagues to show Israel your power over these idols, and yet they would keep these idols, Lord. They would keep them and worship them, and you would say, get rid of these abominations, and they would not. Oh, Lord, teach us. Teach us. Give us a heart. Father, and especially that heart that when we see issues, Father, help us not to be angry with those who are lost. 
to be angry with those who are, are blinded, to be angry with those whose hearts are hardened. Father, help us declare life to them. And if they choose that, Lord, you deal with them, but let us declare life, let us declare truth. Help us, Lord, to represent you correctly you're not the one who's going around trying to kill everything and everyone that rejects. You want to save them. And you aren't willing that any should perish. Teach us to be stewards of your good news. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen.